Chapter 2 of Alfredo Bonanno's Let's Destroy Work, Let's Destroy the Economy. Chapter 2. Let's keep our feet on the ground, please. If you endorse the idea of the destruction of work, you will always find someone, even among anarchists, who replies, And tomorrow, if we don't work, what will we eat tomorrow? So, if you get this response, it means you are talking to a pragmatic anarchist, or rather to one who has his feet firmly on the ground. One of those who, when you ask him if he still considers the role of the working class to be significant in the clash between dominated and dominators, replies, Absolutely! But don't risk asking him what being realistic or pragmatic means. His reply might upset your dreams for a long time to come. He will tell you that you need to respect the conditions of the class struggle, not put yourself ideologically above other people's heads so as to not, so as not to become a vanguard of the proletariat, adding fairly persuasively that this is not due to a need for efficiency in the struggle or getting immediate results, but because it is necessary to continue to support the exploited at the place where they show most capacity to respond to capitalist exploitation, i.e., the workplace. Of course you will feel like saying, which I advise you to keep to yourself, but isn't that camouflaged ideology? In other words, ideas that have lost all contact with reality? And you will want to say that the working class no longer exist, that they have been broken up by capital's historic encounter with the new technologies, so all reformers practice, such as making claims or defending past gains, simply support this strategy of dominion and annihilation. But in my opinion, it would be pointless. Realism, or political pragmatism, is a pernicious opinion, is a pernicious illness. It insinuates itself into the practice of those who only see things in casual schematic terms. They cannot escape them. In fact, gradualism can be extremely convincing. At least it is comforting concerning what would happen in the short term and puts off fear of the future. In this way, our pragmatic, realistic comrade tells us that an essential point of the struggle is making sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Fascism never again. And looking back to the old forms of fascism, they miss seeing the new ones that in no way resemble those of the past, but are perhaps even worse. This comrade, knowingly retorting that if you don't work, you can't eat, and that it is hazardous and unrealistic to insist on the destruction of work, is supporting a thesis that remains locked in the reality of the present, which he ends up justifying without realizing it. He's not interested in discussing ideas or questions of method. All he wants to know about are results, which he can only gauge from a quantitative point of view. Men and things to be counted, elements of reality to coincide with projects, social dynamics to be understood. These are the ideas and methods that gave results in the past. There can be no such thing as critical reflection or anything that might put them in doubt. Any idea that might threaten his search for the consensus of the exploited, or that might in some way present anarchist revolutionaries as subverters of the constituted order, including the legitimate expropriation of the means of production, 
must be isolated. Otherwise, goodbye to expropriation and goodbye to the peaceful passage to the free society of the future. Experimentation can only be carried out in small groups, this comrade in his enlightened pragmatic vision of the struggle will say, and these are meaningless from the point of view of the class struggle. This mentality has a number of other characteristics. First, it corresponds to a vision of reality that depends on certain conditions, an evolution one assists simply by providing occasions for improvements. The function of the abs absolutely other is not taken into consideration. What started off as a point of view will qu quickly become condemnation, and taking a distance, if experimentation in that direction takes on any significant form and consistency. Secondly, it accepts technology as the main element in any civil cohabitation, so can only imagine the future society as starting off from an alternative use of today's technology. Third, it cannot free itself from its own institutional task, that of exercising fear of the unknown. Any attempt to speed this gradualism up encounters insurmountable problems, making the unknown appear to appear the enemy, and the known, i.e. the conservation of the existent, something to be protected from falling into the hands of the barbarians. To reply to them with our thesis on the absolutely other, it is often a complete waste of time. Every era, right from the obscure beginnings of history, has been traversed by the long shadow of the bureaucrats. Something else is required. Chapter 3 Space and Capital No single part of physical space can be isolated from the interference of capital, be it outer space or the ocean depths, mountains or rivers, seas or deserts, the great metropoli or the tiniest, most out-of-the-way village. A whole series of relationships intersect and overlap. Seemingly unrelated elements are linked by the common matrix of exploitation. One might try to deceive oneself by going somewhere far away, out of this world, as they say, only to discover that the mechanisms of capital still reach us and function perfectly. That explains why we are against eco ecologism, just as we are against any other, quote, alternative proposal that claims to do something against exploitation by isolating one part of reality from the rest. Of course, we also start off from specific points in our interventions, but we do not fool ourselves that we can really attack the enemy by remaining within that part. In order to move to attack, we must overcome the fragmentation, which at a certain point becomes a necessary choice but is essentially a strategy that has been imposed on us by capital. Now, the serious pillage carried out by exploitation, the one laden with the greatest consequences, is the theft of time and space. These two thefts are substantially linked. Capital steals our time by obliging us to work and by conditioning our lives, infesting them with clocks, commitments, deadlines, and so on, right down to the smallest detail. By stealing our time, it prevents us from understanding ourselves. It alienates us. Without time, 
we would not even notice the theft of space. We need time in order to become aware of the very presence of space. To think, to listen, to dream, to desire. By living space in terms of distance, kilometers to be covered, moving from one place to another, we lose sight of our relationship with, thing, with things, nature, the world. Capital stole time <clears throat> from us. It needed it for production. Then came the system of control and repression, and, <clears throat> finally, the generalization of consensus. Now we are faced with the need to move to the appropriation of our time and space. Our attack cannot fail to cause damage and ruin. That is, in the logic of things, the logic of the class war. The project of power is global. It cannot permit the existence of, quote, empty spaces. Our project of liberation is also global, for the opposite reason. It cannot allow, quote, <clears throat> free spaces not to exist. If we were to allow capital to achieve global domination, we would be dead for good. Fortunately, the road power will need to cut cover in order to reach globalization is still a long one. As well as embezzling space and time at a global level, capital is beginning to divide reality into two separate parts. It is no longer a question of the old fragmentation, but of a net division, a real wall between included and excluded. The first will be guaranteed a condition of privilege, domination, high cultural levels, projectuality, and creativity. The second, a condition of survival, consensus, subcultures, supine acceptance, lack of stimulation, and perhaps even of needs. In this perspective, capital and the state require complete availability of social space. Nothing must escape their control. And that is not all. Capitalism now has technologies at its disposal that allow it not so much the possession of space as its actual production. Think of its capacity to communicate in real time between two distinct points thousands of kilometers apart. That does not only change the productive order, variety, creativity, stocks, etc., but also, and principally, the human order of social relations which are also economic. So capital is actually producing space on the basis of its project of exploitation and domination. It is transforming and destroying nature, modifying cities and the land, destroying seas, rivers, and lakes, submitting stellar distances to its militaristic logic. The space produced in this way then serves to channel individuals so we find ourselves in huge traffic jams, speeding along motorways, standing in queues in the supermarket. We are afflicted with traffic chaos, appointments we must not miss, fictitious interests that make us feel bad, obliging us to be continuously and senselessly on the move. We move in spaces that have been programmed for us, but which we imagine we have, quote, chosen ourselves. Our houses are full of useless, harmful objects. Space has become restricted, or rather has changed according to the needs of capitalist production, 
which still which needs to sell television sets, fridges, washing machines, furniture, and built-in kitchens. So, almost without noticing it, our time is disappearing and our space is reducing itself to relationships with objects that bear witness to capital's power to convince. In this way, we are being educated to repetition. We carry out the same gestures, as everyone knows, but systematically forgets, in the anteroom to consensus. For its part, capital is obliged to take space from us because it cannot leave any available for our creativity, our capacity for tinkering with things, our desire for innovation, which is the first stimulus to finding solutions that turn out to be incredible endowments of spontaneity and wealth. If capital were to leave space to such individual forces, it would not be able to reach the pace of repetition that is indispensable to production. The latter, we must not forget, is only such on, is only such on the condition that it is also reproduction. Think of the efforts, helped by electronic technique, that capital is making to realize everyone's desires with the maximum centralized and codified diversification. The big names in fashion, the fast food chains, the advertising that highlights individual taste within mass production are no more than attempts to block various roads that might still be traveled today. Although the space that is produced and reproduced is based on consensus, it contains a considerable amount of purely repressive aspects in the policing sense of the term. Control regulates movement in every way. Raw materials and men, ideas and machines, money and desires. Everything is coordinated because everything has been preventatively homogenized. Differences are no more than that. They are not radical diversities. They have been reduced to the rank of appearances and in this new capacity are praised to the heavens as the reign of freedom. So the strategy of power is therefore that of controlling, quote, all space in the same way that as it controls, quote, all time. It is not just a question of police control, but mainly of control based on consensus and the acceptance of models of behavior and scales of values that are those of the capitalist technocrats. What to do? Go in search of lost time? Lost space? Not in the sense of a nostalgic journey of going back in time. Nothing in life goes backwards, just as nothing presents itself again in an identical, or in an absolutely different, way. The old relationship with space left the sign of a physical place, the sign of man and his things, a road, a square, a country crossroads, a river, the sea and the sky, woods and mountains, were in open discourse with the individuals who knew how and wanted to listen to them. And affinity with other individuals led men to the same places, animated their feelings, spurred them to action and reflection. One found oneself as an individual, whereas one now hides as part of a whole, of a crowd. Once we were open, also often unprepared and vulnerable, now we are all protected by uniformity, repetitiveness. 
We feel more secure because we belong to the flock. Everything is being produced and reproduced. Everything is about to become a commodity. In this perspective, the struggle for social space becomes a struggle for the reappropriation of all, quote, territory beyond and against the rules of control and consensus. Chapter 4. Self-Management The points that follow are addressed to the part of the movement for self-management that claims to exist within the anarchist movement. Personally, I do not believe that it exists at all. In fact, in areas where traces of an embryo of it might seem to exist, they turn out to be quite the opposite. Of course, this could be considered to be quite an arbitrary assumption, but a moment of reflection should help to clarify the matter. It is not enough for anarchists to build some kind of structure, be it a squat, a libertarian school, an alternative bank, or a food and services co-op, for the latter to be considered self-managed. It must also have a libertarian basis and this essential element cannot be a simple declaration of principles or a symbol. In other words, it is not enough for a social center simply to call itself anarchist in order for it to really to be such. Two more elements are required. The first is that in order really to be anarchist, the activity the structure tends towards must be irre irreducibly aimed at attacking power in all its forms. The second is that the structure itself must remain quite decisively separate from power. In other words, never come to any agreement in order to receive financing, facilities, or anything else. This is no idle question. We are not talking of the sex of angels, but of something quite practical. If a structure is against all institutions, it cannot strike up an agreement with any of them. If it did, it would cease to be against them, that is to say, cease to be revolutionary or anarchist. The same goes for the whole movement for, quote, self-management. So what is this movement based on? It is based on a political phenomenon which is becoming more and more evident each day. Power does not just need power does not just need humiliated oppressed servants. It also needs people who, believing themselves to be free, unwittingly con contribute to the management of society. Think of the important role played by voluntary associations today. Areas of recuperation in terms of the maintenance and management of power are widening through structures that are in harmony with the institutions in spite of their alternative critique of society. If these interests were to change, or if the action of self-managed structures were really to become a threat, the agreements would disintegrate into, in a flash and power would revert to its last card, brute repression. But what would these comrades, disarmed for years by their chatter, agreements and absurd fantasies about living in common have at their disposal to struggle against, it, against such repression. On the other hand, the projects of the structures managed by various Marxist and non-Marxist fringes who label themselves the, quote, area of autonomy, are quite different. 
Here, recognition of the institutions and an open program dialogue with the latter corresponds to a strategy in the medium and long term, a strategy that is essentially political and covers the whole of social reality. This, in spite of its theoretical stupidity, at least has the value of being consistent with the quite out of reach objective they want to reach that of taking over and managing political power. But what has all that got to do with anarchists? End of chapter 4. This was an audio recording brought to you by the Another World is Possible audio podcast.